continue on here this morning? Sounds like you got into some good conversations. Good, good. Something worth celebrating is that this last week, Every Meal, an organization that Adobe just mentioned, we have the honor of having birthed from this church, served its 10 millionth meal. <laughs> is that not the faithfulness of God? That would have not been in any strategic plan when this church started. What if we could serve 10 million meals by launching, you know what I mean? That would have not been in the plan. Praise God for that. Um, please pray for them. They've never had so much need as they have had this fall. And so pray, sign up to come serve. If you can give, um, that would be huge because there is a huge need right now here in the Twin Cities for, for food over the weekends for kids. Um, if I were to share my Thanksgiving tradition, I want to have a first question, which is how many times do you have to do it for it to be a tradition? Like the second time, is it a tradition then? Okay, because last year, my amazingly strange husband, amazing and amazingly strange, deep fried a turkey, and yes, he's alive still. He made it. He lived. JD. And uh, this year, we're doing that again. So is that a tradition now, babe? It's a tradition! Deep fry a turkey. Pray for him because we just want it to be... I've seen some scary videos on YouTube about this. So that's our tradition, I guess. Deep frying the turkey. Uh, everything tastes better deep fried. Let's pray before we look at our text together this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the promise of your presence here with us. We thank you for this school, Las Estrellas. We pray, God, that you and your spirit would fill this place and it would remain here this week, um, that it would make a difference for the kids. And we pray for those kids in need of food here at this school and the many schools, the over 400 schools that are served in the Twin Cities. God, would you provide miraculously? We thank you for every meal and their leaders, and we ask that you'd bless them as well. And God, we pray that your spirit would be present with us now as we look at your word, as we dig into what you have to say to each one of us this morning. We thank you for giving us your word and also for the promise of your presence by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we welcome you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're coming in to land here on our series of a Jesus-centered church. Next week, Pastor Ashish is going to finish us off. And it has been an important series for us. Because whether you've been a part of Mill City for a long time or maybe you're visiting with us here today, welcome. Uh, we are passionate about being Jesus-centered people and about being a Jesus-centered church. That is kind of an unashamed thing for us. We're unashamedly Jesus-centered people. And we desire to be a church that centers ourselves on the works and the words and the ways of Jesus. And how we see that understanding throughout all of Scripture pointing to who Jesus is and his his living in our lives. And the truth is, is that we live in a world, I don't think this will shock anybody, that pulls our hearts in directions away from what Jesus' heart is for us. We've noticed that, haven't we? The beginning of this, this series, one of the first, the, I think the first sermon that I shared about was what I think is one of the deepest pulls in our world today away from the heart of Jesus, and that is the, the, the fact that we live in a power-obsessed world. A power-obsessed world, and that looks different in different cultures, but we live in this power-obsessed world. Who was there when I was doing a sermon on power and the power went out in this building for most of the sermon? Okay, that was ridiculous, right? Right? Emma's like, what? That happened. It was kind of crazy, but that's what we were talking about. We talked about how when power is twisted, when it's hierarchical in these ways that cause authoritarianism, when it causes authoritarianism and this way in which like tyranny and, and power, it has led to so much suffering and oppression in this world, hasn't it? We just looked at some headlines that Sunday. It was like, this is, this is it. 
But here's what we talked about. Jesus doesn't come to reject power. Jesus redefines it. Jesus doesn't come to reject power. Jesus redefines it. Perhaps a rule of thumb for all of us, a rule of thumb, why do we call it that? Perhaps a rule of thumb is that when there's something in this world that has caused so much destruction, our gut reaction should be, how does the kingdom of God redefine that? Because almost every time, if not every time, it is redefined, rejected, or totally reinterpreted by who Jesus is, by the works and the words and the ways of Jesus. So what does power look like in the Gospels? I mean, just quick overview. It looks like sacrificial love, even for enemies, freedom and justice for the oppressed, deep service and compassion, mercy for those in need, caring for the least of these, and so much more. You see how Jesus just turns destructive power on its head and uses this power of coming up under. And in my opinion, today's passage is one of the most misinterpreted passages in Scripture. Of course, there's plenty. But I would say the reason that it's often misinterpreted is because it is read through the lens of our power-obsessed world. And that's why we have to take some time today to say, what is God's heart for us in this passage? This passage has caused deep pain and deep suffering all over the world. And I think you'll see that as we engage the text. So this is going to be a little bit more of a deep dive of interpretation than maybe we're used to here at Mill City. Some of you love it. Some of you are like, what does that even mean? I just invite everybody to lean in. I'm going to have Anna come up, and she's going to read our passage for today. Uh, when we kind of do this deep dive in Scripture, we often call it seminary for everyone. Okay, seminary is pastor school. It's where we learn how to, to lead a community, but we also di dig deep into scripture. So welcome to seminary for everyone, right? Welcome to seminary for everyone. Because these are, don't these people look smart? They are. Intelligent. Yes. So we can do this together. We, we got this. So Anna's going to read this passage. It's kind of long, so I actually have a question that I want people to look at. So look at this question up here on the screen. What might need a deeper look if we trust that Paul is inviting us into the sacrificial power that Jesus gave up everything to redefine. So as Anna reads these many verses, what might need a deeper look? Paul would not contradict who Jesus is. So let that curiosity be with you as she reads this passage. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, 
and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Of course, we're being just a little cheeky. This is Pastor Ash's wife. So we decided that her and my husband could draw straws for who was going to read the passage, and she got the short straw. I'm kidding. Of course, Anna's happy to serve. Uh, Like I said, I think this is one of the most misinterpreted texts, and it's caused some of the deepest destruction. So just let's just, for instance, it's been used to marginalize women, to advocate for an unhealthy hierarchy between men and women, to inflict upon men an unhealthy pressure to what I call perform strength that should never have been put on them. And it has been used, as you can imagine, to justify human slavery. And the sad thing to me is that this deeper understanding of this passage actually communicates the opposite in so many ways. I hope you'll see as we look through this together that this passage advocates for significant moves away from the marginalization of women, especially in the first century context. I believe that this passage elevates both men and women towards equality and mutuality and service. I believe this passage shows that service is true strength, not might and not power. And I believe that this passage speaks about the first century cultural practice of slavery in ways that likely led to the earliest abolitionist movements in the first century. But in addition to what a tragedy it is that this passage has been so significantly misinterpreted, in my opinion, is that everything that I just mentioned isn't really what the passage is actually about at its core. Isn't that a tragedy? They're merely footnotes in the main point that Paul is trying to make. There has been so much that has been deeply lost in translation, including the main thing that I think Paul is trying to say. So I hope that as we look through this together, like I said, we're going to dig deep. As we look through this together, that by the end, we'll be able to recover and pour ourselves into the heart of this passage that, and its meaning for our lives because it's so rich and it's so often completely ignored. There's actually a lot at stake if we don't receive the core message that Jesus has for us in this passage, okay? So here's my disclaimer for you today. I really don't want you to think that the Bible is something that is inaccessible to all of us. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You don't have to have uh, the understanding of the biblical languages. This passage is a more complicated one, but I believe that God speaks through the text to us, especially in community. But we do have to remember, we are reading it in a different language, except for the handful of you who can read biblical Greek or Hebrew. Most of us are reading it in a different language. And it's a very different context 2,000 years later, right? And even in this room, think of all the cultures represented in this room. And so we're all coming to this text and we're trying to understand it. But I want you to know, we live in a time when there is more resources than ever accessible to all of us to dig into what the meaning of these texts are. So I encourage you. I would say if if you want to look at other perspectives than the one I'm sharing today, absolutely. My goal here is to get us closer to an accurate understanding of Paul's words than I think are often experienced. But I'm still open to learn, and I hope that you are still open to learn. 
So today is going to be an example of that going deep into the Greek and to the to cultural context to get at the depth of meaning. But the Bible is alive and all of us can access it. And I've got resources for you online if you go to millcitychurch.com blog. Some of you are like, I want to know more than what we're going to talk about today. Go for it. I would love that for you. And others, you need to hang in there because it's really important that we dig into this together. There's also some books and a really helpful podcast by uh, some friends of our community named Bruce and Joy Fleming. They're scholars here in the Twin Cities. And what I would say about them is that they have done some of the best work at making the high-level scholarship down to earth so that we can really grasp it and it's accessible to anyone. So if you want to check that out, you can go to millcitychurch.com slash blog. Also, all my slides are there, so you can check those out there. Okay, are we ready for this? All right, all right, we're doing it. First of all, we start out with this pretty intense statement in verse 521. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is intense. Just think about that for a minute. Who are these one another's? There's a section break that's here often in the NIV, for instance, that says instruction for Christian households and then verse 21. Sometimes the verse is in different places. Rule of thumb, whenever there's a header that's not in the biblical text, that's something people put in later, sometimes helpful, sometimes not. I would say it's not helpful here because who are the one another's we're talking about? Is it households only? Definitely not. Look at what's happening right before and you're going to see that the one another's being talked about here is the body of Christ. All of it, not just nuclear families, not just extended family households, but everybody. Did you know that 38%, we think, you know, just from surveying y'all, 38% of the Mill City community isn't married. And so even though there are going to be some untangling of some nuclear family stuff that happened in interpretation here, we need to hang on because that is not what this passage is about, as this first verse would suggest. Here's a contextual translation. I'm going to do this a few times today. A contextual translation to help us get at the meaning. Look at this translation of verse 521. Everyone in the Christian community should willingly choose to submit to one another because that honors Jesus. Everyone. No one's off the hook. The family of God, everybody, not just merely households. And Paul's comments that we're going to see about households are merely illustrations of that bigger point, of which there could be many more. And when we look throughout Ephesians, and also in what many people call the sister text to Ephesians, which is Colossians, a letter that was also being translated to and being uh, shared uh, to many of the same churches, we believe they were circulated at the same time, we can get a definition of what it means for Jesus' followers to submit to one another. And so I want to submit to you this definition today, even though we don't have time to go back and find all those pieces. But here's what I would say submitting to one another means. To gently teach and correct each other out of love. To remind each other who God is by singing songs to each other and over each other. To choose wholehearted service as though you were serving Jesus himself. You might have heard that one in the text. To choose wholehearted service as though you were serving Jesus himself. And the most important distinction is in this whole verse, this this initial verse here, is that the word submission here in Greek intentionally removes hierarchy. In fact, Paul, get this, you guys, Paul made up his own word here. It's not a word that we find in other places in ancient Greek. Paul made up a word here to modify the hierarchical submission to be about mutual submission. He actually makes up his own word. I feel like Paul is saying, you guys, we are so countercultural as Jesus people that we don't even have words for the kind of people we're going to be. And that's what he shares with them. So it really means submitting to one another, to intentionally choose, not be forced to, but to choose to submit to one another. 
Practically, that means, I would say, that there's no roles in life where you don't choose or have the opportunity to choose to mutually submit to other Jesus followers. Now, I hope this is an obvious caveat. People have to be gentle and loving and appropriate in the way that they speak to one another, not seeking to power over. Because if so, then we can all submit to one another in healthy ways and learn from each other. Our growth depends on it. But there's absolutely no space for ungirded power and for people who are using that power to be abusive or to control people. No space for that. That caveat, I hope, is very clear. But there is no role in which people cannot submit to one another in their life. For instance, as a pastor, this week I got some really clear and very gentle feedback from someone in our community. Of course there's a temptation to be defensive, but I'll tell you, it was really good. It was such a good reframe. And I thought, if I can receive this instruction and this feedback, I will be able to serve our community better. And that's a fact. Sometimes I don't respond as well, but that's true. Pastors and leaders, older and younger, men and women, we can all submit to each other because that helps us grow and, according to Paul, it honors Jesus. Can you see how our power-obsessed world makes that sentence so unusual? Pastors and leaders, older and younger, men and women, we can all choose to submit to one another because that honors Jesus. This is so countercultural that Paul has to make up a word. That's crazy. This is what he does. And, okay, so if anyone wants to know technically what he does, here it is. Ready for this? Paul took the word to submit, and he makes it into a parsipatial or an ing verb, and then he makes the verb reflexive, and he adds the reciprocal pronoun to one another. So he does. So he does. To translate, <laughs> he turns hierarchical submission, a word that was used in Greek, and he turns it into choosing intentionally to submit to one another mutually to choose intentionally to submit to one another mutually. And our definition that we gave, to gently teach and correct each other out of love, to remind each other of who God is, to choose wholehearted service as though you were serving Jesus himself. So instead of submit to mean power over, power over, power over, power over, which I think brings everybody down, this definition of submission, this new word, is come up under, come up under, come up under, come up under, and everyone is able to be risen up and encouraged and built up in Jesus, which is what Paul's always talking about. So then we go to verse 23 that pastor's spouse Anna read, wives, submit to yourselves, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. If you look at this text, Paul then uses three illustrations of their common first century context. Wives and husbands, parents and children, and masters and the enslaved, Okay. This language is kind of foreign to us, but it would have rang a bell to everybody who was listening to it because this was the form of standard writing in those in the ancient Near East called the household codes, okay? The household codes. And Paul's codes would have seemed radical compared to the others in the Greek and Roman society at this time. And so I think you're going to see that in a minute. But please remember this. This passage is not primarily about the household codes. This is just Paul trying to give an illustration, and then we got stuck on that and missed what he was trying to say. But we'll unpack it before we go to the main point. Paul is using these, illustration, these as an illustration. I would say there's four main interpretation challenges that we face here. All right, this is seminary for everyone, right? Isn't this fun? So seminary for everyone, what are the four main interpretation challenges that we see? A missing verb, misunderstood imagery, missing cultural context, and a missing main point. 
These are the things that I've noticed, at least in our dominant culture, we have had as interpretive challenges. And these lead to this destructive interpretation mentioned earlier that causes us us to miss the deep and meaningful main point of the passage. So I want to go through each one, but we're going to go quick, all right? So remember, the notes are online, so let's do this together. You might want to have your Bible out, if you don't, on your app, and we'll keep going through it together on the screen. Okay, number one, missing verb. Look at this slide showing the Greek and the English translation. I I color-coded it for you. So you see the the Greek words here. I'm not going to read it in Greek because I'm terrible at reading it. It just sounds terrible. So, but look at, we're color-coding it. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's verse 21. Now look at verse 22. Notice in this, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Do you see that underline? The phrase, the new word, the special word that Paul made up is not in verse 22. Isn't that interesting? It's not even there. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That sentence doesn't make sense. (laughs) What is it missing? A verb. Yeah, it's missing a verb. So this would not have been that strange in Greek writing. What you would automatically know is that you would take the verb from the previous sentence and you'd place it within the sentence. It was like a shorthand, okay? So he's just taking the, the, the next sentence as an example of the verb that he already gave. So then it would look like this if you plop that down in there. Wives, submit to one another to your husbands as to the Lord. That sentence sounds funky too, doesn't it? But you can't decide that the meaning that Paul had in the first verse is not the same in this one. You can't, I mean, you you can, but that's not what happens in ancient Greek writing. That's not what happens. All right? This is a Greek writing pattern. It wouldn't be that weird. Willingly submitting to one another mutually. So I want to suggest today that I, I mean, the NIV is what we use here a lot, but many translations are missing the way to interpret it fully, is what I want to say, to fully interpret this verb and bringing it down in. And I'm going to use Bruce Fleming's interpretation that I mentioned before. Look at this contextual interpretation. Spouses, make sure to be submitting yourselves to the teaching and correction you are giving to one another in Christ. If you think about the verb, you can't just decide it means something else in the next verse. What does this mean? Spouses, make sure to be submitting yourselves to the teaching and correction you are giving to one another in Christ. What is that doing in that context where there was definitely hierarchy and gender? It's saying, hey, (laughs) we're going to do this. We're not going to do this. We're going to start to do this. We are changing the frame. We're going to begin to mutually submit and serve one another, and everyone's going to be lifted up in Christ. So this interpretive problem is that missing verb in verse 22 loses the reciprocal meaning of mutual submission. You see where I'm saying that? It loses the, the depth of meaning there. Final note, look at this. Look at this slide. And this is, I can, once again, I'm just terrible at reading the Greek, but notice how different these two words are. In Ephesians 21 and 24, talking about husbands and wives, there's that word for mutually submit to one another. In Ephesians 6, 1 and 6, 5, it's talking about children and the enslaved, which are at that time hierarchical, of course, when a child is still a minor. And so that is a hierarchical phrase, or to obey, or to be obedient. And so what's crazy here is that Paul, once again, the chapter break of chapter 6 kind of doesn't help us out here, but if you look at all of what he's saying in that household code, he's distinctly pointing out that spouses are to be singled out as non-hierarchical relationship, which would be radically countercultural at that time. Just crazy to them. One commentary put it this way. Paul undermines the basic premise of all other household codes of the day, all the Greek and Roman codes, by calling all members of the community, including the paterfamilias, which means the traditional oldest male household, the extended family, 
He's even calling the pedophilias to submit to one another. That was unheard of in the ancient world. Countercultural look at what power is about. Every month on the 18th of the month, uh, JD and I try to race to saying happy anniversary. And so uh, he wins most of the time. You win most of the time. He pays attention to his calendar. And so it can be a text. It can be something. But we are at 68 months of marriage this past week. And that's really not that much compared to a lot of people in the room, right? <laughs> it's just almost six years. We're coming up on six years here in next year. Uh, and JD usually wins. And I think it's easy for us to both say marriage has not been easy. But I, I think it's been amazing. I have never learned so much about myself. I've never been so formed in any one single relationship than I have in my relationship with JD. But the truth is, is that I've had that in a lot of relationships that have formed me in my life. I try as much as I can and often fail to choose to learn from JD, to choose as often as possible to submit to him and what God wants to teach me through him. But in our relationship, that is truly reciprocal. I'm so honored and loved when he chooses to submit to me and what God wants to teach him through me. It's amazing, and I feel so loved by that. And there's barely been a day in those 68 months that JD hasn't done some acts of service that maybe I didn't even notice and often doesn't get celebrated. And that's what it means to be a leader. But what's so cool about this is that even though that's so powerful in marriage, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying we all get that experience with each other as the family of God when we choose to mutually submit and come up and under each other's encouragement and training and encouragement and instruction and love and reminding us of who God is. He's just saying marriage is an example and now it's open to everybody. I think that's powerful. All right, second thing, misunderstood imagery. Here's our second issue with translation is misunderstood imagery. Uh, it's about the head and the body. You probably heard that in there. In American dominant culture, as English speakers, we often use the term head to mean the one that's in charge, don't we? Right, the head of an organization, the head of, of whatever. And so you can see here in this example, there's the CEO and then the hierarchy flows down from there. This is not what it would have meant in the first century in this text. In verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body. This is not referring to a head of an organization. This is our cultural bias. Do you see how we're bringing our cultural bias into that? We all do, myself included. This is not a re reference to the head. In fact, look at these delightful images that, uh, that, that Bruce Fleming has in his book. Isn't this cute? Look at these. Aren't they cute? Okay, so this is a better image for us. See how the ant, an ant has three parts to its body. And together, that is one body. But if you took one part of that three off, that ant's not going to do so great, right? Humans have two, our head and our torso. But that makes one body. And so that's the image that's being used here. It's one of unity, not one of hierarchy. It's one of unity rather than authority. It doesn't mean it's not right to use the head of the organization in American English, but that's, we're not reading American English. We're looking at ancient Greek. So to look at this, here's a contextual paraphrase that might help us get out of, of our minds and the way that we think about this. In verse 23, For when you are married, you are united in one joint body, just as Christ and the church is united in one joint body. Do you see how different our culture is reflecting that into there? And so that imagery causes us to think that this is about this instead of about this. About the fact that a head can't live without its body, body can't live without its head. Jesus says that about the church. 
That's the big takeaway here. Okay, third interpretive problem. I told you I was going to fly here. Third interpretive problem is the missing cultural context. It's all over here, but I'm going to point out two things. I would say our biggest struggle in interpreting the Bible for today, once again, I think it's accessible to us, but it's why we will never be done digging into it, is because we are in such a different context, and there's so many different cultures. And so without a long, hour-long lecture for each point, let me just show you two examples, okay? The first one is, is easily misunderstood culturally, Ephesians 6, 4. Culturally, in the hierarchical world of the first century, the writing says father, but it actually means parents, okay? So it actually means parents do not exasperate your children. Because it's kind of like when you'd say brothers, but it means brothers and sisters. So here's the thing, moms. You are not off the hook, my friends. But it seems like it, right? And people have used this to put undue pressure on dads when it really has to be working together to be able to care well for children, right? That's an example. Okay, second one. We could, we maybe could and will um, do a whole sermon on the way slavery is treated in Scripture. It's deep, you guys. There's a lot there, many books written about it. But the most important takeaway from this passage here, in my opinion, is that Paul is speaking radically about how masters treat those who are enslaved. I know I keep saying radically. I'm trying to find like a, a bigger word, like this would be crazy to people. This would seem like something you would not do. In fact, I gave you a, uh, put this up here, a mind blow emoji because that's the best way I can describe how crazy this would be to people. It would be like a mind blow emoji. I know that's a really millennial thing. Sorry about that, but yeah, it's okay. Um, but here's the deal. That phrase, treat your slaves, masters treat your slaves in the same way. What? Are you kidding? These people work for you. <laughs> they, you are hierarchically in charge of them, Right? But this is something that Paul is just turning around in this crazy radical way. Now, this passage is not about the abolition of slavery. That's not what was being discussed here, so we shouldn't try to read that into it. But here's what one commentary said. The way Paul deals with the issue leaves no doubt where he would have stood on the subject. If the question of slavery's abolition was pointed to Paul, his response would be, people are equals before God right here in, in, in Ephesians 6, 9. And I would suggest that if we look at history, some of this language and some of this way of completely living counterculturally led to some of the first abolitionist movements in the first century. And remember also that Paul and many others are part of oppressed people groups in the first place. And so don't read into it how somebody who is coming from the dominant, powerful culture would speak. He's speaking as a person who's also experiencing hardship. He's also in jail, right? We, we, he's writing this from jail, so think about that for a minute. Okay, here we go. Finally, we made it to the fourth and final interpretation challenge. We did it, okay? The missing main point. Paul seems to try to make it clear in the text. I think he's trying to make it very clear, but we miss it. And I think there's a lot of reasons we miss it. And one of those reasons is what I would call our cultural obsession with marriage and the nuclear family. It's right here in the middle of the passage he even tries to emphasize it right here in verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but don't get confused. I'm not talking about the households. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Christ is unified with the church like a head to a body. No concept of a God would ever do that. <laughs> Quick note, uh, verse 26 to 32 is almost all about Christ and the church, not spouses. If you look closer, you can see why people get confused but washing and blemishes and all that kind of stuff, that's not about human brides. 
That's about the church and what Jesus does. Okay, just dig into that later. Paul says this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The main point is this. Jesus loves the church so much that he chooses unity with us like a head and a body. That's even deeper than that of a husband and a wife. How mysterious is it that God would do that? Jesus loves the church so much that he gave up his whole life to prove it. Jesus loves the church so much that he gave up his throne and his power, and he condescended. He came down to earth to live with humans and to be one of us. And that's not all. He gives us the challenge to follow his lead and to serve other people just like he serves. That's the main point of this passage. How many sermons are we missing this? The main point of this passage is how radical the love of Jesus is. How radical the invitation it is to love and serve each other in the church as though we were serving Christ himself. These household codes are just illustrations to his point. Doesn't mean we can't learn from them. But looking at the passage, you see that we have this invitation to do as Christ. You could go through and you could highlight where it says as Christ, as Christ, as Christ. Humans are to follow Jesus' example as Christ. Summarized in verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We are invited as Christ does these two things for the church to do these things for each other in the body of Christ. To give up ourselves for each other, to love each other, not just in nuclear families. That is a lame challenge, okay? Not just in our nuclear families, everybody in the body of Christ, in the family of God, loving each other and giving ourselves up for each other. Love, service, sacrifice for others. I would say that it's hard to imagine something more countercultural right now than giving up yourself for other people who are not in your family. Sacrificing for other people. I mean, we struggle to even give up some things for other people, don't we? Our time, our energy even. I know I do. I'll be the first to admit it. It's a great tragedy that this passage has caused so much harm because its actual main message would lead to so much restoration if it was received, if we loved each other, if we were willing to sacrifice for each other, if we let go of this kind of bizarre and relatively new idea that we would only do this for people in our nuclear family. I think we'd all be doing a whole lot better, wouldn't we? I saw this, this meme on Instagram. Memes will preach, right? I saw this meme on Instagram. Look at this. It cut, it cut deep for me. The modern condition is mostly trying to do things on your own that people historically have achieved with a large support network and wondering why you're tired all the time. I don't know who David is or what's going on with his profile picture, <laughs> but that was deep. What if we were to do as Christ and love and sacrifice for each other? What if we were to submit to each other as Paul describes and actually received the gentle teaching and encouragement when people do that because they love you? What if we actually sang songs over each other when we were struggling, whether people knew you were doing it or not? I think it would be amazing if, like in verse 6-7, we served wholeheartedly as if we were serving the Lord, not people. Because what does Jesus say about that? When you do that, you are serving me. It's not just as if you are. You are serving me. What if there was a Jesus-centered church that wholeheartedly tried to serve every single person who was a part of the community? A church that thought of others' needs and others' preferences before they thought of themselves. 
A church that considered how they were here not just to be hosted, but to host other people. Not just here to be served, but to serve other people. Everyone would feel hosted and served then, right? And if that kind of community could love so well that people who are lonely feel like they have a family, and people who feel invisible feel seen, and people who have felt marginalized feel lifted up and honored, I would say that given our mental and physical uh, health crisis right now, that kind of community would save people's lives, wouldn't it? Jesus' invitation is to receive his love and then share it vertically. Here's my main point. We got to it at the end. A Jesus-centered church submits to each other out of love and seeks to serve one another wholeheartedly as though they're serving Jesus himself. And I'm going to invite the band to come up, and I want us to be really intentional with our last time of worship here. I'm going to explain to you what, what Pastor Ashish has planned for this time, okay? When some of us hear this, this wholehearted service idea, it sounds exhausting, doesn't it? Because we're tired, just like meme David guy said. And when I've noticed in my own life that I have nothing left to give other people, and I'm tired, like the meme said, and I have nothing left to give, it usually means two things are true. This is in my life, at least. First, I need to be vulnerable and ask for help. And second, I have not been receiving the love that Jesus has for me in my life. So I have nothing left to give to other people. It's not just because my calendar is full. It's because I don't have the supernatural love of Jesus to pass on and that human love runs out in a second. I believe that God is calling us as individuals and as a church to new levels of service and hospitality and sacrifice and love for one another, for the one another's. For anyone who even comes in touch with our community in any form, they should feel this radical love and hospitality. I believe that, that the spirit of Jesus is personally calling our church to that right now. But that means some of us are going to need to ask for some help right now. And all of us are going to need a lot more Jesus. And so in this time of worship, they're going to lead us through this time. And it's going to start with receiving the love that Jesus has for us as broken humans who are desperately in need of a Savior. And we'll celebrate communion as broken humans who are celebrating a Savior that did everything possible for us to be forgiven and to receive grace. And then we're going to move to our last part of the service where we're going to declare together, if you feel ready, that we want to join Jesus in loving other people and coming up under in service and submitting ourselves. And, and we're going to join Jesus to give up our lives just like he did for us. If you're ready to sing that together, then join us in that time. So I invite you to reflect and let the team lead you through this time as we close together.